0: As Duduzi has already announced, we are turning to 2 Timothy in chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we're working our way through these letters, sometimes called the pastoral epistles, where Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, who is at Ephesus, and giving him some advice about how to deal with various problems he was facing there. Now as we think about the, the passage that's before us today, it got me to thinking about the fact that. As Christians, our our Christianity, our our faith in Jesus Christ is grounded in truth. That's what it's about. Some religious ideas are grounded in pragmatism, just what works. And so, you know, if it works for you, well, that's great. And if you share with some people nowadays that you're a Christian and you explain to them what it means to, to be answerable to the claims of Jesus Christ, then they'll sometimes listen politely and be like, well, that's great if that works for you. Fantastic. Go with it. Uh, But it's not for us fundamentally about what works, it's about what's true. And of course what's true will naturally be what works, but truth is at the forefront of what we're about. And that means then that what we believe as Christians isn't up for grabs. Christians do have a legitimate diversity of opinion about various secondary issues, but at the core. There's a set of things that we believe as Christians that are just non-negotiable. And that means that we're not free to continually reinvent ourselves according to the cultural winds or trends, because we've got to firmly hold on to the apostolic teaching that's been handed down to us through the scriptures, and we've got to make sure that we don't move from that. And this kind of challenge isn't new to us in the 21st century. It's something that's been facing Christians for from the very beginning, and it faced the first century Christians as a problem as much as it does today. And it was a problem that lay very much on the hearts of the apostles as they sought to instruct the early Christians. And Paul himself feels this very keenly, especially with regards to congregations like the one at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, we read the very interesting account of Paul saying farewell to the Christians at Ephesus because he's going uh, to Rome and he's not going to see them again. Uh, Interestingly this same group of Christians the Ephesians at Ephesus are the same group that Timothy is working amongst and so he's last seen them in Acts chapter 20 and in, in verse 29 of Acts 20 Paul is really concerned about the problem of spiritual deception and he says I know that after I leave savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock even from your own number men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them so be in your guard remember that for three years i never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears and so you can see that he's got this real burning passion that people will be protected from people that distort the truth and so in our passage today Paul, he returns to this issue and tells Timothy some things that he needs to bear in mind because he wants Timothy to know how to deal with the problem of false teaching in the church. He wants Timothy to be the kind of person that's equipped to actually stand against false teaching, to correct those who are wrong and to be prepared for all that these last days will bring upon him. And so he writes very earnestly to Timothy. And as we read it this morning, it's not a letter to us. It was written to Timothy and so it's second-hand message to us but it's still for us as much for us as it was for Timothy and the same challenge of false teaching that confronted Timothy is a challenge that perennially confronts us and that we need to be aware of what God has to say to us through this as well and so as we're reading this passage this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 we listen to what God has to say to us this morning and he says, Chapter 2, verse 14 of 2 Timothy. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some are for common use, or dishonorable use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, pride, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, "'Brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, "'lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, "'having a form of godliness but denying its power, "'have nothing to do with such people. "'They're the kind who worm their way into homes "'and gain control over gullible women "'who are loaded down with sins "'and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, "'always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. "'Just as Janus and Janbris opposed Moses, "'so also these teachers opposed the truth.' They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. And this is God's word to us this morning. For the sake of clarity, I'll divide the text into three different sections that address the question of how do we stand against false teachers. In verses 14 to 21, Paul explains that he's to stand against the false teachers because he's going to be a contrast to them he's going to be a faithful worker and that's how he's going to stand against them. Then in verses 22 through to 26, Paul explains the way that Timothy is to stand against them by being a gentle, faithful corrective to them. He's not going to be angry and abusive, he's going to be gentle in his approach. And then in chapter 3 verses 1 to 9, Paul tells Timothy not to be surprised at the false teaching that's going to be thrown at him in the, last day, in the last days, but he's to be prepared for its inevitable rise and so in these verses, Paul is preparing Timothy to be a faithful worker, to gently correct those who are wrong and to be prepared for all that's going to take place. So firstly then, uh, Paul tells Timothy to be a faithful worker and he says in verse 15 that he wants Timothy to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed. And every one of us in the church has a responsibility to be faithful to God and to stand against falsehood and to stand for the truth. But it's particularly the responsibility of church leaders who take the responsibility of teaching and correcting to ensure that what is taught to God's people is what God wants his people to actually hear. And part of the function then of being a shepherd or a pastor, if we want to use the Latin word, is to actually protect the sheep, the flock, against spiritual wolves, as Paul talks about in Acts 20, who come in and seek to cause damage to God's people by teaching them what is false. And so Timothy, as a leader responsible for the church in Ephesus, he's got to take the responsibility of standing against these false teachers in an effective way so that he's going to be a good shepherd of the flock, that is Ephesus. And so what does Paul say to Timothy to help him to be this faithful protector of the truth? Well, he begins by telling him in verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. And so when he says that, then you're thinking, well, what are these things that he's talking about that he's got to keep reminding them of? And it's referring back to the previous verses. And previously, he's been talking about the importance of Christians enduring faithfully For the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says very clearly, if we endure, we shall also reign with Christ. And he wants to remind the Christians that becoming a follower of Jesus Christ isn't just about a one-off decision, it's about a long path of obedience to Jesus Christ, whereby we endure all the hardships that we have to go through. But it leads to being with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And so Timothy he needs to warn the Christians about the importance of staying away from what is false so that they can endure faithfully for the Lord Jesus and so Paul says warn them before God about quarreling about words and this is one of the things that they need to be really careful about granted there is a time and a place to correct people about about words that they've misconstrued Um, even the Lord Jesus does it when he's trying to correct religious leaders that twist the scriptures and try and get away from what they're actually saying and he has to correct them in various places so there's a time and a place for that, but what Paul is against is the kind of quarreling about words that actually takes us completely away from what God is trying to tell us, and there are people that try to twist certain words and turn things into an argument, and so divert everybody from the core message of what God's trying to say in the gospel to disputing about silly nonsense that lead people away from the faith, and um, And Paul gives an example of this. So we're not left trying to wonder exactly what's going on here. He gives an example in verses 17 and 18 of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And they were saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, I don't know what kind of words they were disputing over, but probably some words to do with resurrection or eternal life or a new life that occur in the Bible, and they're like, hey, you should look at these words and realize that this means that we already have the life of the age to come, and there is no future resurrection. And so maybe they would take something like Paul's explanation of baptism in Romans 6 and say, hey, look, it says that we're raised to walk in newness of life. Hey, this is the resurrection. There's nothing else to hope for. And so they get people bogged down in this dispute over words, and completely miss the big picture of what god's trying to say to us and so the problem is that this kind of quarreling just completely leads people away from the faith this kind of thing happens today And uh, if you're unfamiliar with how it happens today then you haven't spent too much time on the internet and you should be glad because there's there's places in the internet where people do this kind of disputing over words i'm a member of several facebook groups and there's people on those groups that get a kick out of starting a fight about some obscure interpretation of a word or a verse. So, the other week I saw a post by a guy who was saying that when it says that Christ died for the world, that actually means the world of the Jews. And that it never says that Christ died for Gentiles. And he got bogged down in this fight. And it was just completely diverting people away from the plain message of scripture. And he was quite willing to argue about it until the cows came home. Anyway... I thought that was a beautiful illustration of what Paul says here uh, about the danger of quarrelling about words simply because it distorts the gospel and leads us away from faith in Christ. Well, how should Timothy stand against such error? He says in verse 15 present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And so, Timothy, he's got to be a faithful worker. Going to be a contrast to all that the false teachers are doing, and he's got to correctly handle the word of truth, he's got to handle the word of God correctly or rightly dividing the word of truth in some translations. And the image that Paul draws on here is of somebody who's cutting a straight path, you're going to cut a path straight through a wood to get to where you're going to go. And Paul's taking that image and saying, Timothy when you've got the word of God you know what you've got to do with it you've got to proclaim it faithfully go straight with it don't get diverted into side path meadows that will take you all kinds of directions go straight with it and that's how you will rightly divide with the word of truth that's how you're going to handle it correctly and other ways of handling the word of God says Paul in verse 16 are mere godless chatter and he gives the example then of Hymenaeus and Philetus they'd sank to stupid disputes about whether the resurrection had already happened and clearly it hadn't and we're diverting people away from the truth of the gospel and so dangerous is this approach that Paul says that they destroy the faith of some and when when Timothy sees people leaving the faith being completely derailed by false teaching Paul wants Timothy not to be overly perplexed by this he isn't going to worry that everything is crumbling to nothing because there are some people that get diverted and so he says in verse 19 nevertheless in spite of the fact that people will get misled nevertheless god's solid foundation stands firm what is this solid foundation i think he's referring here to the church because previously in first timothy chapter 3 and 15 he describes the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's God's place in the world where his truth is upheld. And Paul imagines it through the image of a building, of a house. It's God's house, which is another image that he uses in 1 Timothy. And he imagines it with its foundation inscribed with two sayings. The first is this the Lord knows those who are his. And secondly, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And with those two inscriptions, it marks for Timothy two realities he needs to be aware of as he lives in the church. The first is that the Lord knows those who are his. There will be people who will be frauds. There will be people who are insincere and they'll walk away from the faith. And Timothy isn't to be left thinking everything's lost, everything's crumbling, because the Lord knows those who are genuinely His and He will keep them. He will protect them and He will build His church. But there's another inscription, and that's everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So just because there is a reality where not everyone in the church is a true believer does not mean that that's just the way we should accept it and just say, well, you know, some people are. True and some people aren't, and we should just live together. No, he says that that as faithful Christians we need to actually separate from those who are living in wickedness so that the reality of God's true people is actually made clear. Otherwise, people get the impression that the church is just made up of false people and people that don't actually faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. And so those two inscriptions inscribed upon the church characterize two realities that Timothy needs to be aware of. But then Paul extends the image in verses 20 and 21, and he's again thinking about this idea of a house, the church, where there's different people in it. And he says that in a house you've got different objects. You've got things made of gold. You've got things made of clay. You've got things that are for honorable use and things that are for dishonorable use things for wearing around your neck because it's a beautiful necklace, things for dishonourable use like your toilet. And because you've got all of these different things in your house, um, means that these are all useful in various different ways. Now, Paul's point here is not that all Christians are useful in different ways, which is true. He teaches that in 1 Corinthians. People have different functions in the church and that's important and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't look down on anyone because everyone has a valuable part to play. But that's not the point that I think Paul's making here because he says that we are to distinguish ourselves from those that are for dishonourable use. He says that we're not to be like that and he says that we are to be instruments for special purposes made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. And to be clear, I think this is what every true Christian is. Every true Christian are those who have been set apart for God, who are holy, who are called to please God in everything that they do. And so he's calling us to live out the reality of who we are and who we're called to be. And it's a very interesting image because it reveals that, that even in the church, God uses everyone for whatever purpose. Even people that aren't trying to please God, even people that turn out to be insincere, God uses them for his providential purposes. And you see that very clearly in the story of Joseph, don't you? Uh, The way that God uses people that don't expect to be used by him. Because his brothers, they hate Joseph and they decide that they're going to sell him as a slave into Egypt. And so they sell him off entirely with malicious intent. But God then uses Joseph to be the one that reveals to Pharaoh that there's going to be a famine in the land, and therefore they need to prepare for it, and so they stock up. And as a result of Joseph's intervention, many, many people are are saved or rescued because, at the end of the day, of what his brothers have done. And so Joseph can say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so Paul is clear that even in the church, in God's house, There's vessels for honour and there's vessels for dishonour. There's people that will eventually dishonour God, but God has his purposes for them as well. But what Paul wants to stress for us is that we need to be the people that are for God's honour. We are to be the people that want to be used by God, to be useful for God for special purposes. We want to be something valuable for him. And how do we... Be useful for God. Well, Paul's going to explain more in the coming verses, but he's already stressed the importance of avoiding foolish arguments, for example. Don't get embroiled in stupid disputes. Stay focused on the truth of God's word. Hold fast to the gospel and hold fast to faithful Christian living so that people don't think to themselves that Christianity is an excuse for forming your own weird idiosyncratic religion. It's about faithfulness to Jesus Christ. We want to be the kind of people whose hearts are set on pleasing God and being useful to him. And then, as Paul continues in verses 22 through to 26, he gives a further explanation of what it means to be useful to God. So, how can Timothy correct the errors of the false teachers and be useful to God? Should he be harsh and authoritarian? And any whiff of dissent, he's downing people, squashing them so that, you know, that there's not a chance for anyone to go wrong. Well, that's not at all the image you get here um, that Paul's trying to portray for Timothy of someone who stands against the errors of false teacher, who's useful for God. But you get this image of someone who is firm in the grasp of truth, but gentle in their approach to those who are wrong, and so doesn't start fights with people. And so, He says in verse 22 to Timothy, Flee youthful lusts or evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart and don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Now, when you see those words at first, flee youthful lusts or flee the evil desires of youth, at first glance, you might think, Well, he's telling people to, or he's telling Timothy to stay away from illicit sexual desires. I think, yeah, that is a real danger but I don't think that's what he's talking about here simply because you don't get the impression that there's this danger of sexual immorality at the church here or a a danger for Timothy of this. The danger that Paul's talking about here is the danger of false teaching and that's what he's having to address and so when I think about the evil desires of youth I think it's probably referring to a kind of arrogant spirit that's that very oftentimes crops up in, in younger people. And, and I can't speak for anybody else, but I can speak for myself. And I know that growing up, one of my greatest weaknesses was thinking that I knew better than other people. And I was quite arrogant about it. And sometimes my diagnosis of people's problems might have been okay. I might have been on the money. But my attitude wasn't good. And it took me a long time to come out of that attitude And so I think that when Paul is warning Timothy to avoid the the evil desires of youth, I I don't think that he's talking about sexual temptation. I think he's saying, don't be headstrong, don't be arrogant, don't be so full of yourself that you're just crushing people. And so he continues in verse 24 and says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone able to teach not resentful opponents must be gently instructed and so timothy he's going to be dealing with false teachers and people who are saying quite crazy things and timothy isn't then to go on a rampage seeking to destroy anyone with his arguments he's to be clear he's to be able to teach And he's to be gentle and kind in his correction of people. Why? Well, because verses 25 and 26 tell us that those who end up in that state are those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And gentleness might, in fact, be the very thing that wins people over to the truth. And if you see people then as captives who have been taken captive by the devil, who have been led into error then you're going to feel not anger and hatred towards them, but you're going to feel compassion, pity. You're going to want to help them so that God might grant them repentance. And that's an instruction worth heeding because it is possible to be entirely right in what you say and to be completely horrible in the way that you say it. It's possible to be absolutely orthodox and true to God's word And to be astoundingly spiteful and nasty in the way that you correct other people. And Paul won't have any of it. I've been reading a very interesting book recently by an ex-Mormon missionary called Passport to Heaven by a guy called Micah Wilder. And it's really interesting. And one part in it was really convicting as I read it. He wrote about his experiences of going door to door as a Mormon missionary. And he says, an all too common response when we approached Christians at their homes was, We already know the Lord Jesus, and you guys are in a cult and are going to hell. Now get off our doorstep and don't come back with no interest in the message you're sharing. And their tirade would end with the door slamming inches from our faces. And I would often walk away shaking my head in disgust and thinking to myself, If that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with them. Their behavior only further solidified my testimony in the Mormon church and drove me deeper into my religious convictions. And as he goes on, he explains that it wasn't until he actually met a Christian pastor who very firmly but lovingly told him that he needed to read the Bible and discover the Lord Jesus, that he actually went away with doubts in his mind and started to read the Bible and met the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a challenge to us, to think about how we deal with those who are in error. Paul, he's thinking here mainly about people who end up in the church, who who are spreading error. And we've got to deal gently with them, correct them gently. But it applies just as much to people outside of the church. When people come along, spread false messages about Jesus Christ, we've got to be clear they're wrong. We've got to be firm. But we've got to be gentle in our approach because it could be that gentleness that wins them back. It could be that gentleness that shows them what the Lord Jesus is really like. And there's a certain calmness and confidence that comes with knowing the truth. And equally, there's a certain insecurity that breeds anger, where we're not always convinced that we can hold our ground, so we just shout louder, which is really unhelpful. And Paul wants us to be the people that are firm and calm, point people to the truth, point people to the Lord Jesus, so that God might grant them the repentance and lead them to the knowledge of the truth. So when Paul gets to chapter 3, he wants to reassure Timothy that even though there is plenty of danger ahead of him, plenty of need to correct error, he's not to feel deflated by that prospect. He's to be prepared, but not perplexed. And so he warns Timothy about the dangers that lie ahead in chapter 3 and verse 1, and he says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. This expression, the last days, is an expression that's used frequently in the Bible and it simply refers to the period of time between Christ's first coming and second coming because it's the last thing before the Lord Jesus comes. And it's to be characterized by times of difficulty for the Lord's people. And in verses two to five, Paul describes the characteristics of people that you'll encounter in in the last days as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus. And the picture that we get is of people who are completely self-absorbed, people who are... Fake people who are more interested in pleasing themselves than in pleasing God. And the danger is that such people will find their way into the church. And to be clear, he's not saying that everyone in the last days is going to be like this, but increasingly, that's the way it's going to be. And he says in verse five, they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. In other words, they'll claim to know Christ. They'll claim to know God, but they will not by their lives demonstrate that they know anything about the power of knowing Jesus Christ or the transforming work of God's love, God's spirit in our lives. And Paul's really direct about how we should deal with such people. He says, have nothing to do with such people. And again, this isn't against what he's saying about gentleness, because there's a firm way of excluding people that is necessary sometimes. And when people claim to be Christians, and they live in complete disregard of God, they just do not live in any shape or form like Christians, then Paul's really clear to Timothy, don't associate with those people, because they bring the name of Jesus Christ into disrepute. Elsewhere in places like 1 Corinthians, he's saying, this isn't saying that you shouldn't have anything to do with unbelievers, because otherwise then you would need to leave the world. He's saying that when people claim to be Christians, when people claim to know Christ, and they really don't live like it, then you've got to clarify to people who are watching on that actually no, they're not Christians. They don't know Jesus Christ. And so separation from such people is important. And Paul describes such false believers further in verse 6. And he says, they worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. Paul's not being misogynistic here, trying to say that women are gullible. Um, Paul has co-workers that he praises. It's not at all what he's trying to say. Nor is he laughing at such women and saying, ha ha, look at them, they're so gullible. Because that would be against what he's been previously saying about gently recognising that people have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Rather, Paul is appalled by the way that such people have been victimised by these false teachers. And he's angry at the abuse that's being perpetrated by these false teachers. And so he's calling on Timothy to recognize just how harmful they really are. And so when he comes to verse 8, he gives Timothy a parallel of not only the danger of false teachers, but also how Timothy can be confident. And he mentions the example of of how God's people have faced false teachers in the past and specifically mentions those who opposed Moses and Aaron, Yanis and Yambras. In Exodus chapter 7, you've got these Egyptian magicians that come along and tell Pharaoh, hey, this God of the Hebrews isn't real. And so when Moses and Aaron throw the stick in the ground and the stick turns into a snake, Pharaoh calls his, his false prophets, his magicians along, and they throw their sticks in the ground and they turn into snakes as well. And so this is to try and prove that actually, hey, this, this God of the Hebrews isn't real at all. He's got no real power. Pharaoh buys it, of course, and Pharaoh is convinced by this false teaching But when Moses and Aaron and the people of God stood in the far side of the Red Sea and looked at the bodies of the Egyptian soldiers being washed away, it was pretty clear who was the true God and who was the false God. And so Paul, in effect, is saying, keep in mind what happens to false teachers, Timothy. It might be really frustrating in the short term when people claim to be teaching about God and misleading people. But in the long term... Whether in this life or whether in the far side of the resurrection, it's going to be obvious who was on the Lord's side. And we too, we need to be prepared for the fact that false teachers will harass and trouble Christ's church. We're not to be surprised by it, which is what we're told in the Bible. Nor should we be surprised when God's truth doesn't always flourish like we expect it to. Because we know that in the long term God's truth will prevail but sometimes it will look like evil is prevailing and that's part of the perplexity of life in the last days ahead of the return of Christ but Paul calls Timothy and ourselves to a healthy dose of realism of what our lives will be like and what life in the church will be like we shouldn't be overly triumphalistic and imagine that when we proclaim God's truth instantly everything will be put right it doesn't happen that way but nor should we be overly pessimistic and think to ourselves, eh, everything's in ruins. The false teachers have such a grip in the church that everything's in ruins. We need a healthy dose of realism to recognize that God's truth will prevail. As the Lord Jesus himself said, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And even though it's harassed by false teachers, in the end, God's truth will triumph and Christ, who knows his people, will win the church for which he died. So how do we respond then to false teachers? Well, like Timothy, we've got to be faithful workers who correctly handle God's truth and take it straight to the, to the mark. Don't get diverted by stupid arguments. Hold fast to what's true. We've got to be gentle like Timothy in a correction of those in error recognizing that people have been taken captive by the devil to do as well and we've got to always bear in mind that even though the church will be oppressed by false teachers God's truth will triumph in the end Martin Luther was the great German reformer who didn't get the memo about being gentle towards those who were in error but he said some good stuff and he wrote The beautiful hymn, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in it he writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And may God then give us that confidence to stand in God's truth, knowing it will prevail, And knowing that we shall stand with the Lord Jesus on the far side of the resurrection and know that he has prevailed. Let's bow and pray and ask his blessing on our word. Almighty God, we thank you for the truth of your word, which has stood the tests of time.